Welcome to the Sales Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salesstreet.org. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 says the following words. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. For he must become greater, I must become less. And as we've gathered together this morning uh, at the start of a new year, we've sung sung songs that remind us of the beautiful truth of who God is. Uh, Let us remember that our hope and our joy is not in a new start. It's not in any ability that we have in ourselves to change ourselves. Uh, but it's in the one that has come for us, the one that has died for us, and the one that has risen from the grave. Uh, So let's pray to him this morning. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this time that you've given us uh, to come together and to seek you to be gathered with one another and just remind us of uh, these great truths, uh, that we're not looking for something new, uh, but what you have spoken to us uh, from thousands of years ago. Pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and just to see the beauty of Jesus this morning, uh, grow us as a body of people uh, that have come together seeking you. Uh, do that for us this morning, God, and as we seek you throughout this year. I just ask that you would bless this time uh, by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm even going to sit down and preach this morning, so that's something new. So good morning, uh, welcome to Sale Street. My name is Andrew. Uh, privileged to be up here this morning sharing in the Word. Uh, happy 2022, Happy New Year, everybody! I hope you got your good fill of college football playoffs and fireworks and black eyed peas and cabbage. What what is it? We made red beans and rice yesterday, so I don't know what. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So as we enter into a new year, uh, we'll begin to study the final chapters uh, of the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be in Acts 24, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, But this will be uh, starting the final five chapters of the book. So I think it's worth recognizing uh, that we've been walking through this book for almost one year. Uh, In fact, out of 50 of the last weeks, we started uh, looking at Acts 50 weeks ago, Uh, 47 of them have been spent in the book of Acts. Uh, So that's 47 sermons from six different teachers, uh, averaging, we'll say, maybe 40 minutes per sermon. Uh, I won't name names, but some are less than 40 minutes, some are longer than 40 minutes. And not everybody's here to to defend themselves this morning, so I'll just leave it there. Uh, But it's 40 minutes, that's about 2,000 minutes, or over 30 hours in the book of Acts. Now, we have a lot of work to do if we want to reach John Piper's 225 sermons over eight years in the book of Romans, uh, or the Puritan John Owen, whose sermons on the book of Hebrews fill seven volumes, or 4,000 pages, but uh, hey, that's what New Year's resolutions are for, right? Now, you might be thinking, uh, well, I didn't really have any choice in the matter, you just came to church and we were talking about Acts and 
kept talking about Acts, and we're still talking about Acts. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I'm going to give you more credit than that. You came, you've continued to come, you've listened, you've worshipped, we've learned, uh, we've taken notes together, we've uh, sought to understand how God's word uh, applies to us as a family of his people. And thinking about that this week reminded me of a quote from one pastor who said, born-again people love to hear the Bible preached. And personally, to me, that's just been one of the most encouraging things about Sale Street uh, over the past year is that we have focused on the Word. Tim had mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's worth mentioning again. Uh, but this pulpit is not focused on an individual. It's not a dynamic personality. It's not anything other than God's Word and the God that has spoken to us through the Word. And Jesus himself echoes these same thoughts when he teaches in John chapter 10 uh, about being the good shepherd. This is John 10, uh, starting in verse 3. Jesus says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. We cannot underestimate the long-term fruit of hearing the word of God taught week in and week out. And one of our main goals as a church, especially as we're beginning a new year, should be to continue to seek him through his word and to listen to the words of Jesus. If we are his sheep, then we will not settle for the words, as he says, of a stranger a stranger they will not follow. And the world preaches a million false messages to us that call us to forsake Jesus and pursue our own desires. And these false messages promise joy, but they cannot deliver. So we saw with John the Baptist, he was content to set himself aside and found joy in setting himself aside so that Jesus could be elevated. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning will focus on truth and will focus on joy. And as we'll see in Acts 24, uh, both of these can only be found with Jesus. Uh, So I'm going to turn it over to my wife. She's going to come up and read uh, Acts 24. We're going to read and teach through uh, this whole chapter this morning. So Acts 24. Or what? Oh, shit. Don't mind getting close. <laughs> Fine. Um, okay, so Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several, years, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am here, that I am on trial before you to this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his, right, with his wife Priscilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him and often so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you've been so faithful to teach us through this book so far. God, please open our eyes to this scripture this morning. Um, help Andrew to uh, just preach your word through your spirit and uh, that our hearts would be moved uh, by your presence and by your truth. That would be, we would be changed um, by what we read here this morning. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Here, take this. All right. So just to give you kind of a brief outline of the, this passage, uh, kind of three sections that we see. Uh, first, we see the accusations. It's coming from the Jews. Uh, second, we see the defense, uh, Paul's defense. And then third, we see the response from Felix. So accusations, defense, and response. And previously in Acts, we looked at, uh, I guess two weeks ago now, uh, the second half of chapter 23, uh, Paul's life, he was in Jerusalem, his life was threatened by the Jews. Uh, he was preserved, he was taken away by the Roman leaders and brought to uh, Caesarea at the end of chapter 23. And he was brought to Caesarea for a trial to await a hearing. Uh, if you remember a couple chapters back, Paul appealed to his, uh, to his Roman citizenship. And it was against the law for a Roman uh, to uh, be accused without a trial or to be charged without a trial. And so he's brought to this governor, uh, Felix, and he's awaiting a trial whenever we start chapter 24. Uh, Felix, we're going to get to know a little bit better in this passage. Uh, why he is held in custody uh, under Felix's uh, governorship. And we're going to be covering, obviously, this whole chapter this morning. It's uh, 
quite a bit. Uh, so instead of going verse by verse, we're going to just kind of take it section by section, uh, the three sections that we just looked at. So first is the accusations. Uh, this is verses 1 through 9, the accusations. So Paul is in Caesarea awaiting a trial, and the Jews arrive after five days, and they have appointed a spokesman, uh, Tertullus. You see this in verse 1. Uh, they come down with Ananias the high priest, and they have a spokesman, uh, Tertullus. Um, he would have been a hired person to represent the Jews' case uh, before the governor, Felix. Uh, he most likely would be understood as a prosecuting attorney today. Uh, he has a legal role in being hired by the Jews. So he was a, a professional speaker, uh, in a sense. He would be presenting the case of the Jews, the accusations, to the governor, Felix. And you see in the second verse, he begins, kind of his opening statement here uh, is consisting of flattery to Felix. Look at verse 2. He says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, we know that this is flattery because Felix was not a very good leader. Uh, the record, uh, ancient historians from Josephus uh, to other uh, historians, the record indicates that he was not well accomplished. He did not rule for very long. Uh, he did not rule peacefully. And at the end of this uh, passage, we're going to see where he gets basically kicked out because he's not doing his job. Uh, so the Jews didn't like him, but here they have appointed this professional lawyer uh, to basically blow smoke up, uh, up to him, uh, to tell him, hey, you know, we love you, you're doing such a great job, uh, but the reason he's doing this is so that they can try to sway his opinion to their side. Now, the Bible has much to say about flattery. Uh, one example comes from Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 28, which says, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So the mouth of the flatterer brings ruin. And this is obviously in direct contrast to those that speak truth, uh, which all through the book of Proverbs uh, says that those who speak truth give life or bring life. And we'll see more about this whenever we get to Paul's defense. Uh, but for now, we'll move on to uh, the accusations that he actually brings. So Tertullus brings three charges against Paul from the Jews. This is kind of more of the same of what we've seen from their side against Paul over the last few chapters. Uh, in summary, these are three charges. The first one, Paul has stirred up riots. Second, Paul is the leader of a sect or a cult called the Nazarenes. And third, Paul has profaned the temple. Now, this first charge would have been the most serious in the eyes of the Romans, that he has caused stirred-up riots. Uh, the Romans generally ruled peacefully and allowed the Jews to practice their own religion so long as it did not disturb the peace. Uh, the, we saw the same situation with Jesus and on his, with his trial, uh, where, they tried, where the Jews tried to persuade the Romans that Jesus was causing a rebellion or an insurrection, uh, they didn't really care about how they were worshiping as long as it didn't uh, affect the peace. But if somebody was guilty, Paul or Jesus, uh, if they were guilty of causing a rebellion, then Rome would have punished them. And obviously, we saw that with Jesus. 
the Jews knew this, and they sought to take advantage of that against Paul. So he stirred up riots. Second, he's accused of leading a cult or a sect called the Nazarenes. Uh, this has ties to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. He was known Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, obviously, but was raised in Nazareth. We'll see more of this when Paul responds in the next section, uh, but this is the only accusation that Paul does not outright uh, discredit, that he doesn't reject. Uh, he actually admits to some of what the charge here is. And then last, uh, the Jews accuse Paul of profaning the temple. Uh, this is almost identical to the previous statements made by the mob. If you go back to chapter 21, just flip a page or two back. Uh, Acts 21, verse 28. This is the mob speaking about Paul. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, about the people and the law and this place. Against the temple and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So with this last statement, uh, Tertullus may even be making a slight dig at Felix here uh, because he says here in verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Uh, so this Paul, this plague, as he says, uh, in the eyes of the Jews, has stirred up riots, is leading a cult, he's attempted to defile the temple, and the strong, powerful uh, peace-loving Romans could not stop him, but the Jews were able to seize him and push him out. So they're obviously puffing themselves up here. So what do we think about the Jews' case? Do they provide a reasonable case, reasonable accusations against Paul? First, they begin by flattering the Roman ruler, and they end by arrogantly puffing themselves up. But if you look at what he says, this professional hired speaker, his case is full of general accusations, does not have any factual evidence. And then he closes by turning it over to Felix, who then allows Paul to respond in defense. So this brings us to our second section, Paul's defense. It's roughly verses 20, uh, 10 through 21, the second section. <clears throat> so Paul's response is almost the direct opposite of Tertullus's accusations. He doesn't flatter the Roman leader, but he does acknowledge Felix's authority. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Next, he provides specific truth to counter the general accusations that have been made. You can see this in, uh, starting in verse 11. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So he rejects this first and the most serious charge of causing riots. Namely, because he was only in Jerusalem for a few days before the mob pushed him out. He says it's been 12 days since he went to Jerusalem. He's been in captivity with Felix for five days, so that only leaves about a week for him to do anything. He says there wasn't enough time to cause a riot. And he also appeals to the fact that all of his dealings with the Jews were in public places. Look at that. They did not see me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So all of his dealings were in public places 
where there could have been a witness, an unbiased witness, saying that, yeah, what Paul's talking about is true. Now, Paul also takes this opportunity, as we've seen him many do, uh, do many times throughout the book of Acts, he takes this opportunity to preach the gospel and to testify to his faith in Jesus. And he says this, he accepts the second charge that he is guilty. He is guilty of worshiping God in accordance with the law and the prophets, although this was in a way that the Jews did not accept. He is guilty of following Christ. He is guilty of engaging in ministry and in charity. Uh, if you remember, he was carrying a donation from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church. He was bringing that with him as he traveled to Jerusalem. So the case against Paul boils down to the fact that he is a nuisance in the eyes of the Jews, and they dispute the way that he worships. Paul's claim is that he does engage in worship appropriately because Jesus brought forth the law, what the prophets attested to, to God's intended fulfillment with Jesus. It's kind of hard for us to separate, I guess it's easier for us to separate the Jewish faith and the Christian faith being 2,000 years uh, down the line, but with Paul and the Jews being so close together, him claiming that the way he worshiped God was a fulfillment of what they believed, they, it was easier for them to take offense to that, uh, whereas in our eyes, we kind of just think about it as two completely separate faiths. <laughs> And there's a dividing line also seen here with the resurrection. Uh, you see this in, in a few verses here uh, toward the end of the second section. Uh, then, then right there at the end in verse 21, he says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you to this day. And this is some of the same things that Paul discussed with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees uh, back in chapter 23. He knows that this idea of resurrection is rejected by the Jews, and it's rejected on two fronts. So first, he testifies that all men will be resurrected, will be resurrected, some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation. This was rejected by at least some of the Jews, and I think knowing our society today, this is an idea that uh, is easily rejected by uh, the world at large. Uh, you know, most people either don't believe uh, in an afterlife, I think that's kind of new, uh, more prominent in today's day and age, or most assume that no matter what they do, they're going to go to heaven, right? So the re resurrection is, is rejected on that front. Secondly, he proclaims specifically the resurrection of Christ. And this is kind of the hinge point. We've talked about this, uh, about Jesus' claims to be who he is. If he was not resurrected, then we don't take what he says as true. But because he, was re he resurrected, we know that what he said is true. Uh, even some of the hardest sayings that Jesus gave, we can affirm as true because he was crucified and he rose again from the dead. And this specifically uh, was rejected by the Jews. He was not their Messiah. And same, same thing we see today. So in all of his defense, Paul is obviously confident. Uh, you can just read the confidence from his statements. Uh, and then he even says that he is cheerful, as he states in verse 10, I cheerfully make my defense. 
Remember I mentioned two key words at the beginning, uh, truth and joy. We want to talk about truth and we talk, want to talk about joy. But what are the reasons for Paul's confidence and then for his cheerfulness? There's a section of scripture I'm going to read from in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I think it's worth examining to give us a better idea of Paul's perspective uh, at, during this time. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 7. Paul writes, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, so he's talking about other uh, sufferings that he would have had, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, our appeal does not spring... All right, First Thessalonians 2, 2 through 7. I'll pick it up from the beginning. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by Hello? All right. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So why is Paul so confident? And why is he so cheerful? It's because he's on the side of truth. He doesn't need to resort to flattery, as Tertullus did. Doesn't need to make false accusations. His desire is to please God, not man. And unlike many false teachers, who peddle a type of Christian message for their own shameful gain, Paul does not seek his own benefit in proclaiming the gospel. He has a joy that cannot be taken away, and he simply seeks to share that message, the truth, with others. Let us be as confident in that message today as Paul was 2,000 years ago. So we see Paul's defense. Uh, third and last, we'll look at the response from Felix. The last uh, five verses or so, 22 to 27. So after hearing the case from both the Jews and from Paul, it's up to Felix to determine how things will go. And he decides by not really making a decision at all. He puts this off uh, by deferring to Lysias, the tribune, uh, who basically would have been a higher-ranking leader uh, than Felix, and apparently this goes on for at least two years until Felix is removed uh, for other reasons related to his poor leadership. And then Paul's trial is able to move forward uh, as we'll begin looking at next week. But during this time, this two-year period, uh, Paul was temporarily being held. Uh, he had some freedoms. You see this in uh, verse 23. says that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he was given some 
freedom, uh, at least to receive visitors while he was being held. And then he also is able to have this ongoing conversation with Felix and his wife, uh, who came from a Jewish background uh, during this time, during this two-year two period. And look at verse 25. There's a good, uh, concise gospel summary statement here in verse 25. It says that he reasoned, Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So think about these three words, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Paul knows that righteousness cannot come from within ourselves, and this is the crux of all Christianity. No one is righteous. We see this throughout Paul's writings, Romans chapter 3 in particular. But God is gracious to give us the righteousness of Jesus, who lived the perfect life and who died for our sins. Paul would have been able to explain this uh, to Felix. He testifies to his faith, it says in verse 24. And Paul would have known this the best because he came from that Jewish background that was zealous for the law. He tried to live perfectly according to the law, and it could not measure up. And we, all of us feel this same weight if we try to live according to the law, if we try to be good on our own. So he talks about righteousness. He also talks about self-control. So once God declares us righteous, we receive an alien righteousness from Jesus. Uh, we are called to live moral, upright, upstanding lives, called to forsake our sins. We're called to repent and have faith in Jesus, but repentance is not a one-time thing. We are called to repent continually. Uh, Martin Luther says all of the Christian life is one of repentance. This is something that Christians, uh, on this side of the cross, having been saved, uh, need to reckon with daily. And the reason why righteousness and self-control are so important is because, look at the third one, the coming judgment. There will come a day, either with our debts or with the return of Jesus, where we must answer for what we've done. You see this back in verse 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And this is kind of a, I guess, a question in our day and age, the coming judgment, you know, just the tone of the, those two words, it sounds hard, fearful, right? Uh, I think for sure the coming judgment is something that non-Christians need to be fearful of. Uh, but for Christians, uh, we don't look at the coming judgment as something that we are afraid of because we have been given the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, but I think it helps us to consider how we spend our time and the, what we live for. Uh, Paul makes the statement in, in Ephesians 5 uh, that we should uh, make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Uh, so especially in a new year, I think that's something that people think about time management. Uh, but what do we spend our time thinking about? What do we spend our time doing? Uh, a lot of times it's social media and useless stuff. Uh, but we look to the Word and see where we can spend our time the most uh, fruitful, in the most fruitful way. So righteousness, self-control, coming judgment. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed to Felix. And it's the same truth that uh, we hear and we preach and we teach today. It's the same truth that we know compels uh, God's people to grow. But look at how Felix responds. Second half of 25, it says, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Uh, so 
Felix didn't like what he was hearing, right? Uh, Paul's talking to him about uh, his sinfulness, his need for a savior, his need for repentance, and just pushes him out. We've mentioned truth, we've mentioned joy uh, throughout this passage. We need to ask, what brought Felix joy? He seemed to think that he knew better. He didn't want to hear the message, so obviously he thought that he knew better than God, essentially. There's also this mention of a bribe. It says at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So Paul came down from uh, the Gentile churches with this large offering to give to the Jerusalem church, so Felix would have been aware of that. Uh, if Paul would have given him some of that, maybe he would have let him out early. Uh, we don't know. But he seemed to think that either he knew better than God or that uh, money would have brought him better satisfaction than repenting of his sins and trusting in Jesus. And again, some of the same things, some of the same truths that we deal with today. Uh, we think we know better than God. We talk about the coming judgment. Uh, we think that we have enough time. Even if we have in our heads an idea of a judgment, we think it's far off. Uh, we think that we have enough time to do the things that we want and we can repent later. Uh, I think there's a stupid country song that says everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Sorry if you like that song. <clears throat> we think that we can live a good enough life on our own uh, and make up for our own sins. But the gospel goes against all of these. Uh, true happiness and joy uh, that is lasting can only be found with God, not money, not possessions, not power, not anything else. Uh, the time to repent is not some future day that we may or may not get to. The time to repent is now. Uh, and we cannot make ourselves right apart from his working in us. We cannot do enough uh, to make up for our sins. So the Bible has much to say about joy. We see how Paul was motivated by his joy and his confidence in the truth. Uh, we see how Felix was on a search for joy, uh, but he came up short. And last, uh, as we close, let's look at what the scripture says specifically about Jesus and joy. First, Jesus lived a life full of joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, so this is uh, Hebrews 12 coming on the tail of Hebrews 11, where uh, the writer of Hebrews attests to all of the great Old Testament saints. Um, he says, therefore, let us turn aside from our sinful ways and turn to Jesus. That's where this verse uh, begins. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So Christ lived a life full of joy, but it was for the purpose of joy that he went to the cross. Second, Christ came to bring us joy. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And last, Christ shows us the path to joy. Uh, the parable of the four soils, Matthew 13. says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
So there's a receipt of the word with joy, but no root. It doesn't last. Persecution, tribulation come, falls away. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So Jesus went to the cross for joy. He shows us that he wants to share that joy with us, and he shows us that we receive it only by abiding and continuing to abide in his word, teaching us and allowing it to work in us. Uh, so let us, uh, as we embark on a new year, uh, new year, new mercies we're singing about, uh, same Jesus, right? So let us remember all that he has done, what he has said to us, and allow that to grow in us uh, today and throughout this year. Let's pray. Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and thank you for this time, for the joy that we have in coming together and knowing that you uh, have brought us together, that you have saved us by the power of your sacrifice on the cross and by the power of your defeat of the grave. We just love you and we praise you and worship you in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.